It is a basic principle of exegesis that no plain passage of the word is to be neutralized by one whose meaning appears to be doubtful or ambiguous, that no explicit promise is to be set aside by a parable, the significance of which is not readily determined, that no doctrinal declaration is to be nullified by the arbitrary interpretation of a figure or type. That which is uncertain must yield to what is simple and obvious. That which is open to argument must be subordinated to what is beyond any debate. True, the Calvinist must not resort to any subterfuges to avoid a difficulty, nor rest a passage adduced by his opponents so as to make it teach what he wants. If he be unable to explain a verse, he must honestly admit it, for no single man has all the light. Nevertheless, we must believe there is an explanation, and that in full accord with the analogy of faith. We must humbly wait upon God for further light. Fourth, in order to disprove the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, the Arminian is bounded to do two things. Produce the case of one who was truly born again, and then demonstrate that this person actually died in a state of apostasy. For unless he can do both, his example is not to the point. It is not sufficient for him to bring forward one who made a credible profession and then repudiated it. It, for scripture itself shows emphatically that such a person was never regenerate. The man who dureth for a while only, and then in a season of temptation or persecution, is offended and falls away, is described by Christ as one who hath not root in himself. Matthew 13:21. Had the root of the matter, Job 19:28, been in him, he had survived the testing. To the same effect, the apostle declares of such, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 1 John 2.19 Nor is it sufficient for the Arminian to point to genuine children of God who backslide or meet with a grievous fall. Such was the experience of both David and Peter, yet so far from being abandoned of God and suffered to die in that state, each was graciously brought to repentance and restored to communion with the Lord. Let us now look at the examples advanced. 1. The case of Adam. Here is one who was the immediate workmanship of God's own hands, created in his image and likeness, blessed by the Lord, and pronounced very good. Genesis 1, 28 and 31. Here is one who had no sinful heredity behind him and no corruption within him, instated in the divine favor, placed in a garden of delights and given dominion over all terrestrial creatures. Yet he abode not in that fair estate, but fell from grace, disobeyed his maker, and brought upon himself spiritual death. 
When he heard the voice of the Lord God, instead of fleeing to him for mercy, he hid himself. When arraigned before him, instead of penitently confessing his sin, he sought to brazen it out, seeking to throw the blame upon Eve and casting the onus upon God for giving her to him. In the sequel, his awful doom is plainly intimated. For the Lord God drove out the man from Eden and barred his way back to the tree of life by stationing around it cherubim and a flaming sword. Genesis 3.24 Now say our opponents, what could be more to the point? Adam certainly had the root of the matter within him, and it is equally certain that he apostatized and perished. If sinless, Adam fell then, obviously a Christian, who still has sin indwelling him, may fall and be lost. How then is the fatal fall of Adam to be explained consistently with the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints? By calling attention to the immeasurable difference there was between him and them, what does the case of Adam make manifest? This, the defectability of man when placed in the most favorable and advantageous circumstances. This, that creaturehood and mutability are correlative terms. Man being in honor abideth not. Psalm 49:12. This, that if the creature is to be kept from committing spiritual suicide, a power outside of himself must preserve him. The case of Adam supplies the dark background, which brings out more vividly the riches of divine grace, which it is the glory of the gospel to exhibit. In other words, it serves to demonstrate beyond any peradventure of a doubt the imperative necessity of Christ if the creature, be he fallen or unfallen, is to be saved from himself. There is the fundamental, tremendous, vital difference between the case of Adam and that of the Christian. He was never in Christ, whereas they are. He was never redeemed by blood of infinite worth. They have been. There was none to intercede for him before God. There is for them. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. First Corinthians 15.46 Though the immediate application of these words be unto the bodies of believers, yet they enunciate a general and basic principle in the ways of God with men, in the manifestation of his purpose concerning them. Adam appears on the earth before Christ. Cain was given to Eve before Abel. Ishmael was born before Isaac and Esau before Jacob. The elect are born naturally before they are born again supernaturally. In like manner, the covenant of works took precedence over the covenant of grace so far as its revelation was concerned. Thus Adam was endowed with a natural power, namely that of his own free will, but the Christian is endowed with a spiritual and supernatural power, even God's working in him, both to will and to do, of his own good pleasure. 
Adam was given no promise of divine preservation, but the saints are. Adam stood before God in dependence upon his own creature righteousness. And when that was lost, all the blessings and virtues arising from it were lost. Whereas the believer's righteousness is in Christ, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Isaiah 45:24 is his joyous confession, and since his righteousness is in Christ, it is unassailable and non-forfeitable one. Adam was placed under a covenant of works. Do this, and thou shalt live. Fail to do, and thou must die. It was a covenant of strict justice, unmixed with mercy, no provision being made for any failure. The grace or strength or power with which Adam was endowed was entrusted to himself and his own keeping. But with his saints, God has made a better covenant, Hebrews 8, 6, of which Jesus is the surety, Hebrews 7, 22, and in him our treasure doth in inexhaustible supplies of grace for them to draw upon. This better covenant is one in which justice and mercy harmoniously blend together, wherein grace reigns through righteousness. In this better covenant, God has promised to keep the feet of his saints, to put his fear in them so that they shall not depart from him. Jeremiah 32:40. In this covenant, God has made provision for our failures, so that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John. 1, 9. Thus our state by redemption and regeneration is far, far better than was that of our first parents by creation, for we are given what unfallen Adam had not, namely confirmation of our wills in holiness, though not every act is such. For he works in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13:21, which he never did in Adam. We may add that most of what has been said above applies to the case of the angels who fell. Second, the case of King Saul. It is affirmed by Arminians that this king of Israel was a regenerate man. In support of this contention, they appeal to a number of things recorded about him. First, that the prophet Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him. First Samuel 10, 1. Second, because it is said that God gave him another heart. Verse 9. Third, because we are told the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied. Verse 11. Then it is pointed out that Saul acted in fearful presumption and disobedience. First Samuel 13:9 and 13. Thereby displeasing the Lord, so that it was announced the kingdom should be taken from him. Verses 13 and 14. That because of God's displeasure, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. 
chapter 16, verse 14, that later when menaced by the Philistines, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord answered him not. Chapter 28, verse 6. Finally, how that he had recourse to a witch and ultimately fell upon the field of battle, sorely wounded, and ended his life by taking a sword and falling upon it, chapter 31, 4, thereby sealing his doom by the unpardonable act of suicide. In reply thereto, we would say, we grant the conclusion that Saul passed out into an eternity of woe, but we do not accept the inference that he was ever a regenerate man. At the outset, it must be remembered that the very installation of Saul upon the throne expressed the Lord's displeasure against Israel. For as he declared to the prophet, I gave thee a king in mine anger. Compare First Samuel 8, 5 and 6, and took him away in my wrath. Hosea 13, 11. Concerning the three things advanced by Arminians to show that Saul was a regenerate man, there are no proof at all. Samuel's taking of the vial of oil and kissing him were simply symbolic actions betokening the official status that had been conferred upon Saul. This is quite clear from the remainder of the verse where the prophet explains his conduct. Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Chapter 10, verse 1. Not because the Lord delighteth in thee, or because thou art a man after his own heart. It is not said the Lord gave Saul a new heart, but another. Moreover, the Hebrew word haphak is never translated gave elsewhere, but in the great majority of instances, turned. It simply means the Lord turned his heart from a natural timidity, see 1 Samuel 10, 21 and 22, to boldness. Compare 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 7, chapter 13, 1 through 4. That the Spirit of God came upon him so that he prophesied is no more than is said of Balaam, Numbers 22, 38, Numbers 24, 2, and Caiaphas, John 11, 51. 3. The Case of Solomon this is admittedly the most difficult one presented in Scripture, and it is our belief that God meant it to be such. His history is such a solemn one, his fall so great, his backsliding so protracted, that had his spiritual recovery and restoration to fellowship with the Lord been made unmistakably plain, a shelter would be provided for the careless and presumptuous. In Solomon, the monarchy of Israel reached its zenith of splendor, for he reaped the harvest of glory for which David both toiled and suffered, entering into such a heritage as none else before or since has ever enjoyed. But in Solomon, too, the family of David entered its decline, and for his sins the judgments of God fell heavily on his descendants. Thus he is set before us as an awful warning of the fearful dangers which may surround and then overthrow the loftiest of virtues and most dazzling mundane greatness. 
that Solomon was a regenerate man, we doubt not. That he enjoyed the favor of God to a most marked degree, the inspired narrative makes plain. That he suffered a horrible decline in character and conduct is equally evident. Neither the special wisdom with which he was endowed, the responsibilities of the exalted position he occupied, nor the superior privileges which were his rendered him proof against the temptations he encountered. He fell from his first estate and left his first love. His honor and glory were sadly eclipsed. And so far as the historical account of the books of Kings and Chronicles is concerned, he was buried in shame. The dark shadows of a misspent life and wrecked testimony shrouded his grave. Over the fate of Solomon there rests such a cloud and silence that many good men conclude he was lost. On the other hand, there are those who do not believe that he so fell as to lose the favor of God and perish eternally. With others, it is our own conviction that before the end of his earthly pilgrimage, Solomon was made to repent deeply of his waywardness and wickedness. We base this conviction upon three things. First, the fact that he was the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 1, and that it was penned at a later period of his life than the Proverbs and Canticles. See 1 Kings 4, 32. Now to us it seems impossible to ponder Ecclesiastes without being struck with its prevailing note of sadness and without feeling that its writer is there expressing the contrition of one who has mournfully returned from the paths of error. In that book he speaks out the bitter experiences he had gone through in pursuing a course of folly and madness and of the resultant Vexation of spirit. See especially chapter 7, verses 2, 3, 26, and 27, which is surely a voicing of his repentance. Second, hereby God made good his express promise to David concerning Solomon. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chastise him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, Second Samuel seven fourteen and 15. Third, centuries after his death, the Spirit declared, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved, of his God. Nehemiah thirteen twenty six. 4. The case of Judas. Though his be not nearly so difficult of solution, nevertheless it is admittedly a very mysterious one, and there are features about it which pertain to none other. But that which more immediately concerns us here is to show there is nothing in this awful example which militates in the least against the doctrine for which we are contending. That Judas is eternally lost, there is no room to doubt. That he was ever saved, there is no evidence whatever to show. Should it be said that the Lord would never have ordained a bad man 
to be one of his favored apostles? The answer is that God is not to be measured by our standards of the fitness of things. He is sovereign over all, doing as he pleases and giving no account of his matters. Moreover, he has told us that our thoughts and ways are not as his. The mystery of iniquity is a great deep, yet faith has full confidence in God, even where it cannot understand. That Christ was in no wise deceived by Judas is clear from John 6, 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. Furthermore, we are told that he declared on this solemn occasion, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Verse 17. Notably and blessedly did that act make manifest the moral excellency of the Savior. When the Son became incarnate, he averred, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Hebrews 10, 7. And God's will for him was revealed in the volume of the book. In that book it was written that a familiar friend should lift up his heel against him. Psalm 41, 9. This was a sore trial, yet the perfect servant balked not at it but complied therewith by calling a devil to be one of his closest attendants. Christ rendered full obedience to the Father's pleasure, though it meant having the son of perdition in most intimate association with him for three years, constantly dogging his steps, even when he retired from his carping critics to be alone with the twelve. Appeal is made by the Arminians to John 17:12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest to me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Yet there is nothing here which supports their contention. Judas was given to Christ and chosen by him as an apostle, but he was never given to him by a special act of grace nor chosen in him and united to him as a member of him as the rest of the apostles and as all the election of grace are. This is clear from his words in John 13:19. I speak not of you all. Compare verses 10 and 11. I know whom I have chosen, that is, chosen unto eternal life, for otherwise he had chosen Judas equally with the others. Let it be carefully noted that in John 17:12, Christ says not, None of them is lost except the son of perdition. In using the disjunctive but, he sharply contrasted Judas from the rest, showing he belonged to an entirely different class. Compare Matthew 12, 4, Acts 27, 22, Revelation 21, 27, where the but is in direct opposition to what precedes. Christ statement in John 17:12 was designed to show that there had been no failure in the trust committed to him but rather that he had complied with his commission to the last detail it also served to assure the 11 of this that their faith might not be 
staggered by the perfidy of their companion. It gave a further proof that he had not been deceived by Judas, for before he betrayed him, he terms him the son of perdition. Finally, it declared God's hand and counsel in it. Judas perished that the scripture might be fulfilled. Among the reasons why God ordered that there should be a Judas in the apostolate, we suggest it was in order that an impartial witness might bear testimony to the moral excellency of Christ. Though in the closest possible contact with him by day and night, he could find no flaw in him but confessed I have betrayed the innocent blood Matthew 27 4 it was not from saving grace Judas fell but from ministry and apostleship Acts 1 25 we turn now to look at some of those scriptures appealed to by Arminians in support of their contention that those who have been born of the Spirit may fall from grace and eternally perish. We say some of them, for were we to expound every passage cited and free them from the false meaning attached thereto, this section would be extended to an undue and wearisome length. We shall therefore single out those verses which our opponents are fondest of quoting, those which they regard as their chief strongholds. For if they be overthrown, we need not trouble with their weaker defenses. It is hardly necessary to say that there is not one passage in all the Word of God which expressly states the dogma the Arminians contend for, and therefore they are obliged to select those which abound in figurative expressions, or which treat of national and temporal destruction, or those relating to unregenerate professors, thereby deceiving the unwary by the mere sound of words, and resting the scriptures by straining fragments divorced from their context. John Wesley, in his serious thoughts on the apostasy of saints, framed his first proposition thus. That one who is holy and righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall from God as to perish everlastingly. In support of this, he quoted, but when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned. In these shall he die. Ezekiel 18.24 that the founder of Wesleyan Methodism understood this to refer to eternal death is evident from the purpose for which he adduced it, as this passage is generally regarded by Arminians as unanswerable and unassailable. We will consider it at more length. This construing of shall he die, as shall perish eternally, is contrary to the entire scope and design of Ezekiel 18, for this chapter treats not of the perseverance or apostasy of the saints, 
neither of their salvation nor damnation. Its sole aim is to vindicate the justice of God from a charge that he was then punishing the Jews temporarily, not for their own sins, but for the sins of their forebears. And therefore there was manifest unfairness in his dealings with them. This chapter has nothing whatever to do with the spiritual and eternal welfare of men. The whole context concerns only the house of Israel, the land of Israel, and their conduct in it, according to which they held or lost their tenure of it. Thus, it has no relevancy whatever to the matter in hand, no pertinency to the case of individual saints, and their eternal destiny. Again, though the man here spoken of is indeed acknowledged by the Lord to be righteous, yet that righteousness by which he is denominated only regards him as an inhabitant of the land of Palestine and as giving him a claim to the possession and enjoyment of it, but not as justifying him before God and giving him title to everlasting life and felicity. For this righteousness is called his, verse 24, and not another's, Isaiah 45:24, Jeremiah 23:6, that which he had done, verse 24, and compare verses 5 through 9, and not what Christ had done for him, Romans 5:19. It was a righteousness of works and not of faith, Romans 4, 5, Philippians 3, 9. This man was righteous legally, but not evangelically. Thus, if a thousand such cases were adduced, it would not militate one iota against the eternal security of all who have been constituted righteous before God on the ground of Christ's perfect obedience being reckoned to their account, and who have been inwardly sanctified by the Spirit and grace of God. Let the reader carefully peruse the whole of chapter 18. The mission of the prophet Ezekiel was to call Israel to repentance. He pointed to the awful calamities which had come upon the nation as proof of their great guilt. They sought to escape that charge by pleading, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. The prophet answers that, though in his governmental and providential dealing, God often visits the father's sin on sinful children, yet the guilt of sinful fathers is never in his theocracy, according to the covenant of Horeb, visited on righteous children. He went further and reminded them that temporal prosperity was restored to the nation as soon as an obedient generation succeeded a rebellious, and that as soon as a rebellious individual truly repented, he was forgiven, just as when a righteous man became wicked, he was plagued in his body or estate. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors. Matthew 18.27 and 34. 
This is quoted to prove that persons truly regenerated and justified before God may through high misdemeanors in sinning turn themselves out of the justifying grace and favor of God, quench the spirit of regeneration, and come to have their portion with hypocrites and unbelievers. Arminians are not the only ones who rest this passage for Socinians, quote, verses 24 through 27, to disprove the atonement of Christ, arguing therefrom that God freely forgives sins out of his compassion without any satisfaction being rendered to his broken law. Both of these erroneous interpretations are the consequence of ignoring the scope and design of this passage. Christ was not there showing either the ground on which God bestows a pardon or the doom of apostates. The scope and intention of Matthew 18:23 through 35 is easily perceived if the following details be attended to. 1. Christ is replying to Peter's, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Verse 21. 2. It is a parable or similitude of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 23 which has to do with the mixed condition of things, the whole sphere of profession in which the tares grow together with the wheat. 3. From Christ's application in verse 35, we see that he was enforcing Matthew 6, 14 and 15, on account of the mercy and forgiveness which the Christian has received from God in Christ, he ought to extend forgiveness and kindness to his offending brethren. Ephesians 4.32 Failure so to do is threatened with awful vengeance. If I forgive not from my heart those who offend me, then I am only an unregenerate professor. Note how Christ represented this character at the beginning. No quickened soul would boast. I will pay thee all. Verse 26. Luke 11, 24 through 26, appealed to by Arminians, need not detain us, for the last clause of Matthew 12, 45, proves it is a parable about the nation of Israel. Freedom from the spirit of idolatry since the Babylonian captivity, but possessed by the devil himself when they rejected Christ and demanded his crucifixion. Nor should John 15.6 occasion any serious difficulty. Without proffering a detailed exposition, it is sufficient to point out that the vine is not a figure of vital relationship as is the body. 1 Corinthians 12.11, Colossians 1.24, but only of external and visible. This is clear from such passages as Psalm 80, 8 through 14, Jeremiah 2, 21, Hosea 10, 1, Revelation 14, 18 and 19. Thus there are both fruitful and fruitless branches, as good and bad fishes, Matthew 13:48. The latter being in Christ only by profession, hence the as a branch. 
confirmatory of this. The father is here designated the husband man. Verse 1, a term having a much wider scope than the dresser of his vineyard. Luke 13, 9. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Romans 11:21. But such a passage as this, verses 17:24, is nothing to the purpose. The natural branches were the unbelieving portion of the Jews, verse 20, and they were broken off from the position of witness for God in the earth, the kingdom being taken from them and given to others, Matthew 21:43. What analogy is there between these and the supposed case of those united to Christ and later becoming so severed from him as to perish? None whatever. A much closer parallel would be found in a local church having its candlestick removed. Revelation 2:5 set aside as Christ witness on earth. True from their case, the apostle points a solemn warning, verse 22, but that warning is heeded by the truly regenerate, and thus is made a means of their preservation. Through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died, First Corinthians 8, 11. One, it is not affirmed that the weak brother had perished. Two, from the standpoint of God's purpose and the sufficiency of his keeping power, the feeblest of his children will not perish. Three, but the strong Christian is here warned of and dehorted from a selfish misuse of his Liberty, verse 9, by pointing out the horrible tendency of the same. Though Christ will preserve his lands, that does not warrant me in casting a stumbling stone before them. No thanks were due the Roman soldier that not a bone of Christ's body was broken when he thrust his spear into the Savior's side, and the professing Christian who sets an evil example before babes in Christ is not guilty less because God preserves them from becoming infidels thereby. My duty is to so walk that its influence on others may be good and not bad. 1 Corinthians 9.27 simply informs us of what God required from Paul and all his servants and people and what, by grace, he did in order to escape a possible calamity. 2 Corinthians 6.1 refers not to saving grace but to ministerial as verse 3 shows. As laborers together in Christ's vineyard, they are exhorted to employ the gifts bestowed upon them. Ye are fallen from grace. Galatians 5, 4 is to be interpreted in the light of its setting. The Galatians were being troubled by Judaizers who affirmed that faith in Christ was not sufficient for acceptance with God, that they must also be circumcised. 
The apostle declares that if they should be circumcised with the object of gaining God's favor, then Christ would profit them nothing, verse 2, for they would thereby abandon the platform of grace, descending to fleshly ceremonies. In such case, they would leave the ground of free justification for a lower and worthless plane. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, First Timothy one nineteen and twenty. So far from these being regenerated men who spiritually deteriorated, Hymenius was a profane and vain babbler who increased from one degree of impiety unto more ungodliness. Second Timothy 2:16 and 17. While Paul said of Alexander that he did him much harm and greatly withstood his preaching. Second Timothy 4:16 and 17. Their putting away a good conscience does not necessarily imply they formerly had such, for of the unbelieving Jews who contemptuously refused the gospel, Acts 13:45 and 46, it is said, the same Greek word being used, that they put it from them. They made shipwreck of the Christian faith they professed. Compare Galatians 1.23, for they denied a future resurrection. Second Timothy 2.18, which resulted in overthrowing the doctrinal faith of some of their hearers. But as Second Timothy 2.19 shows, this was no apostasy of real saints. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. There are two sorts of enlightened persons, those who are savingly illuminated by the Holy Spirit and those intellectually instructed by the doctrine of the gospel. In like manner, there are two kinds of tasting of the heavenly gift, the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come. Those who under a fleeting impulse merely sample them, and those who from a deep sense of need relish the same. So there are two different classes who become partakers of the Holy Spirit, those who only come under his awe-inspiring and sin-convicting influences in a meeting where his power is manifest, and those who receive of his grace and are permanently indwelt by him. The repentance of those viewed here is but that of Cain, Pharaoh, and Judas, and those who openly repudiate Christ, become hopelessly hardened, given up to a reprobate mind. The description furnished of the above class at once serves to identify them, for it is so worded as to come far short of the marks of the children of God. They are not spoken of as God's elect, as those redeemed by Christ, as born of the Spirit. They are not said to be justified, forgiven, accepted in the Beloved, or made meet for the inheritance of the saints in light. Nothing is said of their faith, love, or obedience. Yet these are the very things which distinguish the saints from all others. 
Finally, the description of this class in terms which fall below what pertains to the regenerate is employed again in verse 9. But, not and, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, in contrast from them, and things which actually accompany salvation. Hebrews 10:26-29. The apostle says nothing here positively of any having actually committed this fatal sin, but only supposes such a case, speaking conditionally. This particular sin referred to here must be ascertained from the epistle in which this passage occurs. It is the deliberate repudiation of Christianity after being instructed therein and making a public profession thereof and going back to an effete Judaism. The condition of such would be hopeless. The nearest approach to such a sin today would be for one who had been taught the truth and intelligently professed to the same, renouncing it for, say, Romanism or Buddhism, to renounce the way of salvation set forth by the gospel of Christ, is to turn the back on the only mediator between God and men. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins for those who prefer calves and goats, Judaism, or Mary and the saints, Romanism, rather than the Lamb of God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. 
were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.